0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Getting Personal, Reassessing HIV Management to Better Individualize Treatment Across the Ages. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash yhx860. Downloadable additional resources are also available.
1: Hello. My name is Dr. Chloe Orkin from Queen Mary University of London and Bart's Health NHS Trust in London, England. Welcome to this visual tour, which will reassess the management of HIV and individualizing treatment for people living with HIV across all stages of their lives. We hope by the end of this activity, you've gained a lot of confidence in this area, and I hope you enjoy this. I'm going to start off by looking at recognizing the barriers that threaten our goals of ending the HIV epidemic. HIV remains a major global issue and has claimed the lives of an estimated 40.4 million lives. In 2022, 39 million people were living with HIV, 53% of whom were women and girls. 630,000 people died from HIV-related causes and 1.3 million people acquired HIV. So as you see, it's still a significant global issue. UNAIDS has established global targets for 2025 to move toward ending the HIV epidemic by 2030. And these goals include that 95% of people at risk of acquiring HIV use effective combination prevention options that 95% of people living with HIV know their status and that those who know their status, 95% of them initiate treatment and that 95% of those people are virally suppressed. So what are the barriers to reaching these? Well, what we can see is that while we are expecting for 95% of people to know their status, in reality in 2022, 86% of people know their status. We've got a long way to go and not long to get there. 95% of people who know their status initiating treatment, we've only reached 89%. And 76% of all people living with HIV were receiving treatment. And in terms of viral suppression, where we are at is that 71% of all people living with HIV were virally suppressed. So really, we have an awful long way to go in not very much time. So action is needed. So the current trends, in case I haven't made this clear enough, indicate that UNAIDS goals for 2025 and 2030 may not be reached without increased efforts. So while anyone can acquire HIV, the epidemic has not impacted all people equally. And I indicated that on the first slide when I spoke about the prevalence in women, but this is also a global issue. And there are some countries which have been far worse affected by the HIV epidemic. And you can see that most affected is the African region. So these are data from the United States in 2021, and these data demonstrate disparities in prevalence by race and ethnicity, as well as assigned sex at birth. It also indicates differences in incidence by age of diagnosis, by race and ethnicity, and region of residence. And these are really very stark disparities, particularly when we look at black groups, and particularly black females. And we can see that these are really, 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 very, very, very stark disparities, no matter how we look at it. And I think that being a black person living in the U.S. is a very, very significant risk factor in terms of acquiring HIV. In addition to regional differences, racial and ethnic, as well as gender and age disparities, there are also key populations, specific people that are disproportionately impacted by HIV infection. So if we think about who these are, what we can see in terms of transgender people is that the global median HIV prevalence in those aged 15 to 49 is 10.3% in transgender people. And this is quite a stunningly shocking figure. We can see that in men who have sex with men, it's 7.7%. In people who inject drugs, it's 5%. In sex workers, 2.5%. In people who are incarcerated, 1.4%. Versus in all adults, up 0.7%. So there's clearly work to be done to support people in key populations. There are a number of barriers to retention in the HIV care continuum and to achieving viral suppression in people living with HIV. These barriers also impact the national and global goals to end the HIV epidemic, because you can't disaggregate the person from the outcomes because it's the people and supporting the people that delivers these outcomes within a global cascade of care. And we can see that the cascade of care starts from being diagnosed, to being linked to care, to engaging in that care, being prescribed treatment, to being able to take treatment and maintain viral suppression, and then to remain in care. So there are factors that affect each of these stages in the continuum, and these are called the social determinants of health. And these contribute to wide health disparities and to health inequities, and can affect individuals' risk of acquiring HIV, to access to care, and to treatment adherence. When we consider some of the social determinants of health, healthcare access and quality is one of them, the neighborhood and built environment in which people live, social and community context, economic stability, And education, access, and quality, these are some of the considerations around social determinants of health. Now, it's also important to recognize that there are intersectional inequities. So things like HIV-related stigma and other intersectional sources of stigma also contribute disparities that affect people living with HIV and at risk of acquiring HIV. And they remain a persistent barrier to HIV care. And it's important to recognize that these individual factors, perceived stigma from providers could include things like non-disclosure of HIV status or risk behaviors to healthcare providers, decreased engagement in HIV care or non-adherence to treatment. On the ends of society, what we consider in terms of societal stigma would also be non-disclosure of status, avoiding seeking care in clinics, hiding medications and seeking care outside of the community of residents. So, you can see that all of the intersectional identities that a person may have can intersect to amplify and accentuate the effects of stigma. So, there are additional barriers to care which may be related to healthcare structure or may be related to individual circumstances and the structural determinants of health. And structural barriers to care can include an absence or shortage of providers and other care continuum staff in a community. It's important to recognize that in wealthy communities, especially the facilities and the services are very different to areas which are poorly resourced. There can be issues around inappropriate or inconvenient appointment times and limited office hours, long waiting times, lack of transportation in certain areas, language or cultural barriers so the clinic doesn't address some of the cultural language barriers needed. As we've mentioned, stigma and discrimination, broader healthcare inequities, which I've alluded to, negative experiences when attending care, and decentralized HIV treatment and testing services, and also lack of access to care during an incarceration. Individual specific barriers to linkage and retention and treatment to adherence may include some of these factors such as transportation factors, distance from care, lack of reliable childcare, inability to take time off work, And this is where social determinants such as job insecurity, housing or food insecurity, language barriers, substance use and mental health and psychosocial challenges may occur. As well as physical conditions, comorbid conditions and the issues of stigma which can be both internalized and externalized. And lack of access to care, which may manifest as a result of lack of insurance or concern about side effects, adverse events, health beliefs and beliefs around what causes disease, treatment fatigue, lack of social support. And that sort of can link to lack of health literacy and also to potentially religious beliefs, which may not believe in sort of the views that you know Western medicine may purport.
0: Hi there, I am Shantae Spriggs. I am a mother, a glam mom, I'm a corporate woman, I'm a degreed woman, but most importantly, I'm a woman that just truly started living once I was diagnosed with HIV in 2010. I haven't had too many issues or concerns, but there have been moments where I faced different obstacles and barriers that were tremendous and huge. Um, Far and few, but they were pretty big. In my earlier years, um, I actually wasn't needing medication at that time. And at that time, ARC um, wasn't actually a requirement. And then after about five to six years, my physician uh, recommended that I go on some type of regimen. And so because of the information, it was new to me, and I'm looking at I've been living with this for years, and now all of a sudden I have to go on this. I thought it was a matter of life or death. So pretty much whatever they prescribed, I didn't do any type of research. Um, But later on, I would say the barriers grew because I started recognizing that sometimes these medications weren't the best for me. And so now when I look at my medication, I look at, okay, what are the side effects with this? What are the medications that could possibly interact with it? But then I also look at, okay, what are the long-term effects on my liver and my kidney? And maybe I need to take a look at this number every time I get my um, information in from my doctor showing what my labs are. But these were things I did not know. So I would just say the first part of phase one is just knowledge. I had great insurance. I did private insurance through my job, but unfortunately one year, I just thought I would try something different, listening to someone else and not making it applicable to Shantae. I went ahead and opted for a high deductible (laughs) insurance plan um, thinking that it's going to save me in the long run. And the initial treatment when I needed my first prescription, they wanted me to pay the deductible of $3,000 up front. And that was something I just did not have. Um, and I tried to work around it. I tried to see what I can pull. I was considering pulling from a 401k, but by the time I pulled from that and withdraw withdrawal and penalties, it would be days later. And so uh, I actually had a day where I just really broke down at work and Luckily a peer came by and asked me, of course, what was wrong with me. And we talked about it. And they helped me advocate for myself. And we actually had to go up to like <laughs> the, the head honchos of my corporation to actually have everything overturned. And they allowed me to make a modification um, to my health insurance outside of the actual open season. So that was kind of something that was kind of life or death. And I was afraid and fearful, but I'm also glad that I had the right peers around me to actually help me advocate for myself. I was okay with the day-to-day regimen, um, the day-to-day business as usual, but uh, there were often times where I would travel anywhere between four to six weeks at a time, um, sometimes a week at a time. And so one particular time, I was in a very like rural place uh, on a business trip, and I realized my medication was coming to an end in like three days. And so I went to see um, if my physician can switch everything over to that particular pharmacy, And when I got to that pharmacy, they actually stated because of that area, which I thought this was kind of stigmatic, uh, because of that area, they really didn't have that type of problem. And this is exactly what the pharmacist rep said to me in the drive through And as a result, um, they said it would take anywhere between 72 hours, if not longer, for them to get the medication. I was fearful of the fact that I may not be able to continue taking that medication within that particular classification and may have to go to another one. And so I researched and ended up having to go to another um, local city um, that was a little bit bigger, more of a metropolitan area, um, to have everything transferred there. But even at that time, it took 48 hours. I'm still doing the one pill a day. I have considered the shot, and this is a conversation uh, my provider and I have had back and forth. Uh, with the shot being so new, uh, I would have to come into the facility to actually have it administered until they find a little satellite location. From my understanding, they are trying to work (laughs) with local pharmacies to actually have it administered. They're kind of sort of like the COVID shot or, you know, the vaccinations. But until then, I would have to go in um, to my actual physician. And right now, I don't actually have to do that. And so that's one of those things that I'm waiting to work the kinks out. It's something I'm definitely will be interested in. I typically would have to drive an hour. If it's traffic, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours to go to my provider. And that was every three months. And so now, um, and some of this came up as a nuance since COVID. Now we meet virtually and we have it to where I automatically just, she sends my lab order in to um, LabCorp and I'll just go ahead and just take my labs. We review it. I have the apps that it comes in within 48 to 72 hours. I can view it myself. And oftentimes I'm sending her a message saying, oh, I'm still good or hey, let's look out for this. And so that way when we have our actual uh, visit virtually, we already have some interactions that we've discussed via chat and in the app. And so I just think that so much has changed from before that Some of those barriers of just traveling and and getting to a provider is just not there. But As a woman um, that's been living with HIV since 2010, um, I will have to say this has been quite a journey, a purposeful journey. For a person that's used to always advocating for herself, it's just great. This is really great to finally come to this point where I realize I'm not really in this alone.
1: So let's think about unmet treatment needs. So let's think about where we started and where we are now. So what you can see on this is the process of FDA approvals of HIV therapies. We can see we started off in the 80s, which feel like a very long time away, in 1987 with cydovidine. And we moved through various D drugs in the 90s through to the protease inhibitor age and various other drugs moving towards integrase inhibitors and fixed drug combinations, which sort of appeared between 2010 and 2014. And we've now got a large number of fixed dose combinations, but very, very excitingly within the last Four years, we now have our first ever injectable long acting treatment in the form of Cabotegravir Piverine. We now have long acting approval for Cabotegravir for Prep, and we have Lenacapavir, which is currently approved as a six monthly injection for people with highly treatment experienced people with multi-drug resistance. and What this means is that we're actually able in some people to remove the daily burden of oral therapy and daily good decision making. So you can see that treatment has completely transformed since the early 80s and that's really great news. So I'm gonna elaborate on the story in the next few slides. So where are we in initial therapy? So right now in international guidelines, what we can see is a large degree of consistency. We have Bictegorea, FTC, and TAF recommended in both IAS USA and DHHS guidelines. And you can also see that there is the option to use a Abacavir 3TC, or dolutegravir. Plus emtricitabine lamivudine with TAF or TDF, and there's some caveats to the abacavir use. And similarly, you can use in first line therapy a two drug regimen now as a recommended therapy, which is dolutegravir plus lamivudine, but there are some caveats. So I think this is a really, really important thing to say. So I'm going to move at this point to talking about one of the new drugs, which is injectable. It's a six-monthly injectable, and it's called lenacapavir. One of the exciting things about lenacapavir, it's it's a first-in-class capsid inhibitor, and we've never had this before. It's a very potent molecule, and it's active at very, very picomolar concentrations, and it's approved for use in combination with other antivirals for the treatment of adults with multi-drug resistance to treatment, whose treatment is failing due to resistance, intolerance or safety considerations. And it's administered subcutaneously six monthly and it was approved in August, 2022 by the EMEA and it's also been approved by the FDA in 2022. So that is exciting. Now, we have cabotegravir piverine. As I mentioned, it's the first long-acting injectable treatment. Combines an integrase inhibitor with a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. It's a complete regimen in adults and adolescents over the age of 12 who weigh at least 35 kilograms. Very importantly, it's only for people who are already virally suppressed, who have no history of treatment failure or any resistance to NNRTIs or integrase inhibitors. Also, people should not have hepatitis B or be pregnant. And this has been licensed and approved, and it's being used as six injections per year. And as I've mentioned, cabotegravir monotherapy is approved for PrEP. So now we're going to have a look at a very exciting animation at the mechanism of action of Lenacapavir, which I'm looking forward to seeing.
2: Lenacapavir is a first in class capsid inhibitor that interferes with the HIV one life cycle by inhibiting three essential functions of the capsid core, a capsid protein shell that contains the viral RNA and the reverse transcriptase integrase and protease enzymes. After the virus attaches to and fuses with the CD4 T-cell membrane, the capsid core is released into the cell cytoplasm, and the reverse transcriptase transcribes viral RNA into DNA. At the nuclear pore complex, the capsid binds to nuclear import proteins and enters the nucleus, where the capsid core disassembles, releasing viral DNA. Lenacapavir blocks this step by preventing nuclear import proteins from binding to the capsid. Viral DNA is integrated into the host cell DNA, allowing expression of viral precursor proteins. Capsid precursor proteins assemble at the plasma membrane, where they form immature, noninfectious virions that bud from the infected host cell. Lenocapavir binds to and destabilizes the capsid precursor proteins, inhibiting viral assembly and release. Within an immature virion, capsid precursor proteins are cleaved by the viral protease and assemble into a mature cone-shaped capsid core. Linacapavir also disrupts capsid core formation, resulting in malformed capsid cores and non-infectious HIV virions.
1: Well, that was science nerd heaven, and I really enjoyed that. I'm gonna move from now to the Capella study to show you the data that's underpinning the license of lenacafavir in highly treatment experienced people with multidrug-resistant HIV infection. So what we can see is there are a number of eligibility criteria mainly focusing on multidrug experience. And the drug was subjected to a 10-day monotherapy period where it needed to show efficacy of a 0.5 log drop, and if that was achieved, the participants could move forward to receiving different arms of therapy comparing against a comparator, and the patients needed to receive lenacapavir subcutaneously six-monthly for 52 weeks. What we see in terms of efficacy at 52 weeks is that there was really excellent outcomes. And we can see that 78% of people on lenacapavir containing combinations together with an optimized backbone did achieve viral suppression, less than 50 copies, and 82% less than 200 copies. So this is a pretty stunning result in people who had their optimized backbone and this new drug. And if we look at safety at week 52, we can see that the safety events were very minimal, being predominantly diarrhea and nausea. And these are events that exclude injection site reactions. There were no serious drug-related adverse events. And there were two deaths which were not considered to be related to the study drug. When we consider the incidence of injection site reactions, after the first injection and after the second injection, what you can see is the vast majority of people had no reaction. the reactions that did occur predominantly grade 1 or two. Interestingly, there was only one participant who discontinued the study due to an injection site reaction, which was a nodule. and this indicates that the people actually persisted because they were able to tolerate the injection site reactions. The drug is also being evaluated in first-line therapy, and you can see that in the phase two calibrate study, which is a multiple arm study for people on first-line treatment, that lenacapavir was given in a number of different ways, and the comparator was bictegravir FTC, and TAF as an oral combination. And you can see it was given six monthly, and you can see that it was also given orally in one of the treatment arms. So this is an earlier stage study, but what we can see is promising outcomes at week 54. You can see the Bictegravir, FTC and TAF is in green and the different lanicapavir combinations are in the other colors. So if you pull the subcutaneous lanicapavir group of treatment groups 1 and 2, initially in combination with FTC and TAF, and then with TAF or Bictegravir, you can see that 88% achieved and maintained virological suppression at week 54. When we consider the safety events, as I've pointed out, the most common adverse events occurring at a frequency of greater than 10% were headache, nausea, and COVID, actually, which was very similar to what we saw in the other study. Once again, no serious adverse events related to the study drug. There were no grade 4 adverse events, and there were no discontinuations due to non-injection site reaction adverse events. Concerning the injection site reactions in this first-line treatment study, you can see that the nature of the events was very similar in the phase 3 trial looking at the Capella study. There were also mostly grade 1 or 2 injection site reactions, and there were 3 participants who discontinued due to injection site reactions, 2 due to induration, 1 due to erythema, and swelling. So I'm going to move to cabotegravir or now and talk about a study called the FLAIR study which is very dear to my heart as I'm the global lead author for this study. So this study was for people who are on first-line treatment and the aim was to give them a induction phase where they received dolutegri or 3 tc for 20 weeks to get them undetectable and then if they were undetectable by week 16 they could go on to be randomized to either receive dolutegri or 3 tc or to receive monthly cabotegavir or following a month-long oral lead-in. And you can see that after week 96, things got complicated and there were different extension phases, which I'll explain to you later on. So if we look at the FLARE trial in terms of efficacy, what we can see in the green is piverine, and then the purple is the oral comparator, dolutegravirabacavir3-TC. And it doesn't take a statistician to see that there was non-inferiority between these two regimens at week 48. Looking at safety outcomes, what we can see is there were actually quite similar outcomes in general versus the oral therapy and small numbers of adverse events leading to withdrawal. We can see that there was one drug-related SAE on cabotegravir rupivirine, which was a right knee monoarthritis, which was not considered to be related to the study drug. And there were no hypersensitivities or drug-related liver injuries. Concerning the injection site reactions, on the left, you can see how the participants reported injection site reactions by week. And what you can see is that after the initial dose, there was a lot of reporting. But by week 48, this had largely petered out and less than 20% were reporting injection site reactions by the end of the study. 99% of these were grade 1 and 2, and most resolved within seven days with the median duration of three days. Considering the participants who decided to withdraw on the basis of injection site reactions, there were only two. So when we look at week 96, we can see that the efficacy was maintained and non-inferiority was maintained at week 96. In terms of adverse events, there was nothing particularly surprising that occurred, but the most common drug-related adverse events occurring in greater than 3% of patients were pyrexia, headache, and asthenia and body temperature increasing, and adverse events leading to withdraw slightly higher numerically on the injectable arm. So when we consider the injection site reactions of week 96, the pattern is very, very similar. You can see that by this point, we have six participants who have withdrawn due to injection site related reasons. And these were broadly categorized as injection site reactions leading to withdrawal and those people that withdrew consent due to intolerability. So it's not very different. And you can see that the grade remained very mild in the main and the median duration was three days. This trial went out to week 124. And at this point, the participants who hadn't been on cabotagavir were given the option of receiving cabotegavir or preven if they wanted to. And based on a participant and physician decision together, they were able to elect as whether they would receive the injection with an oral lead-in or going direct to inject. Just as a matter of chance, it so happened that these arms ended up being extremely well balanced. There are 111 people on the direct to inject arm and 121 in the people who received an oral lead-in. So it was possible to evaluate in a non-pre-specified analysis the outcomes for the direct-to-inject versus the oral lead-in arm and you can see that they were indistinguishable. So before I move to the next, what I would say is that it's really important to recognize that there were also no differences in terms of the pharmacokinetic factors or drug levels. There was no significant differences in the trough levels and in the drug levels that were found whether the people received the oral or not. And that's a very important parameter. And this has actually led to the change in the license of the drug. And the drug can now be used with or without an oral edin. So this efficacy study that was presented at week 124 had a significant effect on the licensing of the drug. So I'm going to move to the ATLAS trial. The ATLAS trial is very similar to the FLARE study. The only difference is that the people who went into the ATLAS study were already virally suppressed, unlike the people on the FLARE study who started off and had to be suppressed on an initial therapy. So you can see that they could be on any treatment, any class of drugs, and half of them received this for the first 48 weeks. And then the other half received an oral lead-in and then received monthly cabotegravir pepperine and you can see the efficacy once again for the green cabotegravir or peverine, is non inferior to the oral comparator. With respect to adverse events, you would always expect to see more adverse events in a switch study, and indeed this was the case, but actually in terms of drug-related adverse events, this was relatively small. And those people that experienced a drug-related adverse event at a frequency of greater than 3%, they were very similar to the FLARE study, fatigue, pyrexia, headache, and nausea, and adverse events leading to withdrawal were small. So if we look at the injection site reactions, you'll recognize this pattern is almost identical to the pattern I showed you in the FLARE study, lots in the first, after the first injection, very few reported by week 48. And the median time is again three days and tends to resolve within seven days and 99% were grade one and two. So I think essentially it's almost the identical pattern. And four people withdrew due to injection site reactions. So when we look at week 96, once again, we see very similar outcomes. And the adverse events at week 96, once again, are fairly unremarkable, no surprises and no real changes. With respect to the adverse, the injection site reactions, the same patterns have been shown. And you can see that two participants in the switch arm who switched between week 52 and week 96 withdrew due to injection site reaction-related adverse events. So what I would say at this point is that there is another study called the ATLAS2M study. This study evaluated the efficacy of cabotegravir/piverine dosed two monthly versus one monthly. So there was no oral comparator here. And in this study, the findings that we've seen in the Atlas study for virally suppressed people were pretty much replicated, where we saw non-inferiority, and we saw a very similar safety profile and a pretty much identical injection site reaction profile. So what we've seen in these three very important registrational studies is a very consistent picture across the three studies. So we do have a pipeline, which is exciting. It's always exciting. We have Islatravir, which is an NRTTI. And Islatravir and Duraverin are being evaluated versus Duraverin 3TC-TDF in first-line therapy studies. We have the injectable maturational inhibitor ending on 937, which is currently in early phase development. We have the MKA five zero seven, which has been given a name, Eulonavirin. And the other drugs are including investigational broadly neutralizing antibodies, terapavimab and zenlarivimab. And these are being studied in virally suppressed people. And we've seen some data on this. So this is the pipeline. And we really hope that it's going to be fertile and lead to lots of additional wonderful options for people to reduce the burden of the necessity to take daily oral therapy and make daily good decisions.
3: My name is Donald Young. I am HIV positive, undetectable, since uh, I was diagnosed HIV positive in 2019. When I was first diagnosed in 2019, I was indigent. I was homeless at the time. I was um, unemployed. I did not have medical insurance, so I um, got state insurance. I didn't have commercial insurance. So I really didn't have much to worry about in way of bills or, or insurance payments. And then as I began to get my life in order, I got commercial insurance, uh, a PPO through my job. And my my primary care physician had both insurances and Now that I had two insurances, I started to get a bill from like lab for for my lab fees. And I wasn't getting that before. And I didn't understand why. And when I asked my doctor, he, you know, spoke broadly about um, insurance and the differences between commercial and government insurance. But and and I picked up rather quickly, but to uh, folks who may not uh, capture things as fast as I May have they surely would have a problem. It's pretty good. They're pretty good with getting me into my appointments, and oftentimes, you know, they'll send a SMS message, and then I'll get something from the uh, the my portfolio or the medical records portal that we use for for my hospital. So I'm almost always. Uh, able to get appointments. And if there's something that's emergent, then I can reach out using that same, my portfolio, that same portal to speak to um, my primary care physician or nurse. Sad to say no. You know, they don't... I should come off as all well put together. And if it's needed, Donald's going to ask for it. But there are some things that I don't know about. And, And sometimes I feel like because my primary care physician or my team looks at me to be, you know, a student on top of it, they sometimes take for granted that I may know, but I don't. When I spoke about my housing situation, it was a community health worker who was from the community who knew of the resources that I needed to get teeth and a um, place to live in food when I didn't, when I just didn't have. Thank God that there was somebody in place to be a part of my team. That's where that's where I get my treatment now. I get my treatment in a multi-services facility where um, I am being treated for my substance abuse and my substance use disorder as well as my infectious disease disorder. So those both, and because they're done in the same facility, it makes it really easy. Everybody's there for my psyche and my mental health, workers, to my physical workers, as well as to my occupational health and job and that sort of thing is connected as well. So it all works in tandem. And it, it's a blessing, I know, because it doesn't happen like that for everybody. Their linkage to care has come from so many different directions that sometimes they have a very hard time navigating through No, it was it was that textbook patient doctor relationship. You know, this these are these are your symptoms. This is your diagnosis, and this is what we do. You every ninety days, you'll get lab work done, and then you'll come in and see me. We'll discuss that lab work. I've made connections with my community health worker, who um, allows me some of the things that I feel like I need to talk to the doctor about are not really medical issues. They are are navigation issues through the intricate healthcare system. And I find that happens with the community health worker. And then, you know, when I mentioned to go to my doctor, after following what the community health worker, you know, advised, he will put it into his treatment plan. So when I get opportunities to talk to healthcare professionals, like the ones who will see this recording. Guys, we have a lot of work to do because there are a lot of people with HIV and those without who are not getting the treatment that they need and that they deserve because they just don't know that they need and deserve it. So we got to do better at getting out there and letting them know what it is that they need and just how we can help.
1: Let's think about retention in care because in order for people to succeed on treatment and for their treatments to be successful, they have to continue to come to their treatment center. So funnily enough, retention in care is something that's quite ill-defined. So essentially, some people define this as a person's regular engagement with medical care at the healthcare facility after initial entry into the system. And the CDC and the National HIV Strategy have a definition of at least two CD4 cell counts or viral load tests, performed greater than three months apart during the year of evaluation. That's what they consider to be a retention in care. The Health Resources and Service Administration and Institute of Medicine consider it to be greater than two medical visit dates that were greater than 90 days apart in the measurement year. But to be honest, the consensus definition is really not there globally or even clearly in the U.S. So in order to keep people living with HIV engaged in care or to re-engage people who have stopped attending, we've got to be aware of their attention status and we need the mechanisms to actually measure whether people are or are not attending. So data to care is a public health strategy that uses multiple sources of data to identify people who are not in care or who are in care but are not suppressed so that they can be re-engaged in care and linked to social services and treated to achieve and maintain viral suppression. And this is something that happens in the US. And this data to care include data from surveillance data in terms of people living with HIV, pharmacy fill data, clinic appointment data, and from other treatment and data care resources. And in the UK, we have similar surveillance mechanisms from the UK Health and Security Agency. And in my own clinic, we have a very special clinic called the Link Clinic, which looks after people living with HIV who are having difficulties adhering or being retained in care. And we have a one-stop shop clinic, which really offers a number of opportunities to look after people. We have a sophisticated way of tracking people who may no longer be retained in care. So I think one of the key things to make sure in terms of offering care and maintaining people in care is really a status neutral framework. That offers people who are seeking HIV prevention services and people living with HIV a number of different services, such as integrated testing, prevention, treatment, and other critical services. And doing it this way can optimize people's health through improving linkage to care and also continued engagement. And this is something that can offer the opportunity to destigmatize both prevention and treatment of HIV. So there's prevention pathways, which include HIV and sexual health testing, and using high-impact HIV prevention, such as PrEP, and that's if someone tests negative. And then if someone shifts and is newly diagnosed, then they would enter the treatment pathway, which would involve effective treatments, HIV primary care, and throughout would be a real quality of care that moves through the system and allows us to treat and prevent endemic infections. So some of the factors to consider when choosing an individualizing comprehensive treatment include both individual considerations, which may center on the particular person's immune status and comorbidities, co-infections, pre-existing concomitant medications, which may lead to drug interactions, to baseline resistance, which may inform or limit the choice of therapy, And of course, unfortunately, things like access and insurance, inconsistent access to treatment and the potential for adherence over someone's lifetime. There are also treatment considerations around the efficacy of the treatment, the genetic barrier of the regimen, and the potential and liability for both side effects and drug-drug reactions. Of course, there are issues around the pills themselves, what they look like, how hard they are to take, how big they are. And then how convenient the schedule is, any potential drug-food interactions And I think also the ability to have access in some countries to the baseline of resistance testing, CD4 counts and viral loads. So these are all really important, both individual and treatment considerations. So how do we manage someone with early infection? Well, the first thing and something that we have learned over the long time that HIV treatment's been available is that treatment is for everybody regardless of their CD4 count. And actually, offering treatment on the day of diagnosis is something that is possible if the person feels that they're able to do this. So I think it's really about working with people and understanding that people have different levels of health literacy. And for those people that know about HIV treatment and are ready to start on day one, that's the right thing to do for them. But other people may require further input to bring them along and get them to the point where they can take an informed decision and be able to take treatment and stick to it. So there are some initial recommended treatments which are recommended in the DHHS guidelines and in the IASUSA USA guidelines and these are predominantly integrase inhibitor based with either two nucleosides or one depending on various considerations and most of these drug combinations are fixed dose combinations which is really great, it makes things a lot easier for people to take. Now it's important to recognize that it's not only all about starting treatment, it's also about optimizing treatment and modernizing treatment in our patients who are virally suppressed. Because things can change, adverse events can arise, drug drug or drug food interactions can arise, people can get tired of the pill burden, people can become pregnant, or simply wish to simplify a combination. So in order to do this, it's crucially important to understand the treatment history and any history of virological failure that has occurred, as well as additional toxicities and allergies. If there is already NRTR resistance, it's really, really important to have a drug that will support successful therapy with at least two other drugs. Now, it's important to recognize that there is the option of giving long-acting cabotegra or either every one month or every two months. And this is a luxury you have in the US. In Europe, we can only give it two monthly. And it can be used as an optimization for people who are virally suppressed without hepatitis B co-infection in whom there's no history of virological failure or resistance to NNRTIs or integrase inhibitors and people that are willing to take the step of attending two-monthly or monthly bore injections. So what happens if the treatment does not work? Well, the first thing to be assessed is adherence because the commonest cause of treatment not working is the fact that people have not managed to take it and there may be many reasons for this. It's also important to evaluate whether drug, drug or drug food interactions may have been affected. And of course tolerability is the commonest reason that people don't take treatment. And it's important to evaluate the treatment history again and try and understand if something's been missed And in fact, there was a history that wasn't appreciated and look at resistance testing. So, a new regimen should include two fully active drugs. And it's important to ensure that you have at least one drug with a high resistance barrier that's included if you're using two active drugs or three fully active drugs if this isn't the case. So, I think it's also important to recognize that sometimes clinical trials might be the best option for a person when this isn't possible. So, improving treatment and improving adherence. How do we improve adherence? Well, this is easier said than done at times. So I think the first thing to think about is if someone is struggling with adherence, it's important to protect their options by ensuring that the drug combination that you prescribe has a high genetic barrier. And what does this mean? This means that it takes multiple steps to develop resistance. And this is not the case with NNRTIs, but it is the case with boosted protease inhibitors, particularly darunavir. And also with second-generation integrase inhibitors like dolutegravir or bictegavir. So we need to take an individualized approach and try and address whatever problem has affected adherence. So if it's the side effects, we affect that. If it's scheduling or appointments, we look at that. We look at whatever we can do to support socially uh, to address the social determinants of health. And if there are psychological barriers, we try and address those through psychological support. But very importantly, this is not one person's job. This is a multidisciplinary approach. And we have this multidisciplinary approach in our link clinic. It offer social worker, psychologist, and very importantly, access to a peer mentor who can talk about things that only someone living with HIV can understand. And this is in addition to the nurse and the doctor. So switching treatment due to adverse events, we've got to maintain viral suppression. That is one very important goal. However, there are other goals and that is ensuring that we balance people's other needs. And these are some of the needs that I've mentioned earlier and we consider some of these other factors and contingencies and liabilities such as drug-drug interactions and comorbidities and also the willingness to become pregnant. So what are the considerations for individualized management and management across the lifespan? So one group that is often neglected and not included in clinical trials, but is a very important group, are adolescents and young adults. And these may be people that acquired HIV perinatally and have gone on to live as people living with HIV through childhood and have reached adolescence. Or alternatively, there may be people who acquire HIV during adolescence. Now, we all remember being an adolescent. It was not easy. We had a lot of hormones, a lot of emotions, and this is a very, very dangerous time in terms of adherence. So it's very important to assess the behavioral and psychosocial context and the ability to adhere to treatment. Services need to be youth-friendly, and that includes appropriate mental health care, to reduce barriers. It's important to prepare adolescents and young adults for the transition to adult care because they may have been looked after by pediatricians all of their lives and it's a big jolt to suddenly land in a quite impersonal adult clinic. Adult providers should consult and collaborate with pediatric and adolescent providers to ensure the smoothest and easiest transition for continued engagement in care. But on the other extreme, we also have older adults and there's an increasing proportion of people living with HIV who are acquiring HIV older or living longer due to successful treatments. Now, what is important, as we all know as we get older, as I certainly feel as I get older, is that as one crosses certain thresholds, comorbidities start to emerge and we start to develop health problems and these health problems need to be treated with medications. And with HIV, these can be particularly complex because HIV is a pro-inflammatory condition and that means that certain comorbidities are more frequent and also some of our drugs particularly our older drugs may have led to comorbidities. So we need to think about adverse drug events as a result of our medications and also whether our medications are potentially increasing the liability of other drugs to cause side effects. So the things we need to think about are bone, kidney, metabolic, cardiovascular, cognitive, hepatic, side effects and concerns. Polypharmacy is something that is common in older persons with HIV. And it's really important to consider drug-drug interactions because they may increase year on year. And some drugs like integrase inhibitors, the second generation integrase inhibitors, have the lowest liability for drug-drug interactions. So I think it's also important to recognize that it's not only what we call physical side effects, it's also that in older people, loneliness and depression are real issues and they can affect health. And there's lots of studies showing that loneliness in itself is more predictive of fatality than cardiovascular disease. So we've got to bear those things in mind. We need to bear in mind individualized management for pregnant people, for women and pregnant persons. And this would include tailoring the regimen to support Both good drug levels, which can be problematic in pregnancy as the volumes of distribution change, but also safety for the fetus. So I think that's important. And I think it's really important to recognize that in the past, we have not really had adequate discussions with pregnant people. We need to discuss the changes because the options in pregnancy are much smaller than they are for general treatment. And that means that people may need to switch their therapy and we need to take people with us, we need to explain why, and we need to explain why certain regimens are not recommended and that would include injectable cabotegravir or preverine in pregnancy because of uncertainties around drug levels. For transgender people, it's very, very important that we offer a gender affirmative model to stop the additional barriers that would reduce adherence to treatment. So I think it's important to make sure that we bear in mind that transgender men can become pregnant and it's very important we are aware of this and we screen and we look after these individuals. It's important to remember that there'll be a lot of concern about interactions with gender affirming hormone therapy and it is our job to both understand what these drug interactions could be, and also to be able to speak clearly and kindly and explain to people and allay their fears that their hormones will no longer work because we have really good data around hormones and we can support this as needed. It's important to recognize that gender-affirming hormone therapies are associated with certain comorbidities, such as hyperlipidemia, such as elevated cardiovascular risk, and osteopenia. So clinicians should bear this in mind when choosing a treatment regimen, but also be sure that they are able to treat these conditions when they arise or refer appropriately. So there are also people who live with HIV and also substance use disorder, and these are prevalent amongst people living with HIV and also exacerbate poor health outcomes. So so screening for this should be part of clinical care. And it's important to recognize substance use disorder can take many forms. And one of the forms that's often not thought about is the use of party drugs, or what we call in the UK, chemsex. And these party drugs can be addictive. And this is also very important. So HCP should be non-judgmental, of course, when discussing substance use with their patients. It's only one of the many behaviors that people can perform which are not helpful, such as overeating, overdrinking, and we need to bear that in mind and be respectful when we speak to our patients. It's important to support other mental health disorders and offer evidence-based pharmacotherapy, for example, opioid agonist therapy where needed, tobacco cessation, alcohol use. And it's not a contraindication to treatment there's plenty of treatments that you can use but we must bear in mind that this may affect adherence and where possible we can try and support this you know and particularly focus on this so i think it's important to consider long-acting injectable treatments which also may improve adherence there are advantages to both and it's important to have different options just like with contraception we have loads of options we have injections And we have implants, we have tablets. We've got daily oral therapy, which has lots of advantages. It's self-administered. It's easy. It's not invasive You can get it at pharmacies. But it requires daily good decision-making. When we think of our current long-acting treatments, there are huge advantages. They reduce the dosing frequency and the pill burden. They liberate people from the daily oral therapy, leaving them from 365 days a year of care to six treatment days a year. And that is really, really impressive. They reduce drug-drug interactions and many, many, many different things. But the challenges is that they require additional clinic visits. They may affect people who have needle aversion, needle phobia. There are the injection site reactions to deal with. And it is an additional burden to the clinic. A lot more work to do for clinics. And it may be difficult to navigate in terms of access and insurance. Managing missed injections is an issue which has to be focused on. And if the treatment doesn't work, there is the risk of drug resistance. This can be managed with the prescription of protease inhibitors, but it is definitely a significant risk. So my key takeaways are that despite many advances in HIV treatment and prevention, HIV remains a global health concern, and more efforts are needed to reach these global targets, which are aimed at ending the epidemic by 2030. We are not there yet. Providers should identify and address both structural and individual specific barriers for care in terms of engagement and treatment adherence, and both need to be addressed. The barriers to treatment initiation and adherence should be considered when individualized care plans are devised. Recently approved long-acting injectable treatment options, such as twice yearly subcutaneously administered lenacapavir and six times yearly intramuscularly administered cabotegravir pivirine can be beneficial for some people to address either multi-drug resistance in the case of lenacapavir, or treatment adherence barriers in the case of habitat viral Efforts should be made to identify patients who are not retained in care and to help them to re-engage in care and to try and understand and address new barriers that may have contributed to falling out of care, and to do this in a holistic way by offering a range of different services that may be helpful. The abundance of treatment options that are now available really allows us as healthcare providers to individualize our treatment in a way that can address needs and preferences as people encounter new barriers or changing circumstances or health concerns over the life course. That ends our session for today. I really hope that you found the activity both interesting and useful to your practice. And thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash yhx860. This program has been supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the practice aids.